0: Deadbeat Scroll by Mark Coggins is slick, sardonic, and suspenseful. Everything a great thriller should be, says New York Times bestselling author Lee Child. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 22 Hive Times. I stepped out onto Mission Street with the intention of returning to the office to enlist Gretchen's help in researching the hive's dream. I figured they had to have some sort of internet presence, and when it came to the internet, Gretchen would be a thousand times more likely to dig up something than I would. Then I realized that Kim might already know something about them, and that it would be better to start with her. Then it dawned on me that I hadn't been in touch with her since I found her friend, Tu Yin, dead in the bathtub of the residence hotel. I felt like a gold-plated heel. It was bad enough that Tu Yin was dead, but I should have been the one to break it to Kim, rather than the cops or the 5 o'clock news. I hurried up Mission to 2nd Street, cut over to Post, and then jogged another half mile or so until I reached the nail salon. It was just after 4 p.m. when I arrived, and I was flustered and breathing hard, not exactly the composed demeanor I wanted to project when I spoke to Kim. I would have loitered outside to catch my breath, but there wasn't any point. Kim was leaning against a parking meter on the sidewalk in front of the salon, smoking a cigarette. When she saw me, she stubbed out the butt and came over to where I was standing. I started smoking again! she said in a deflated voice. I didn't know you quit. Yeah, about five years ago. You heard about Tu yen?" She nodded. On the radio this morning. I suddenly didn't know what to do with my hands. I started to slip them into my pockets, then I let them drop back at my sides. I should have gotten in touch immediately. It's just, it's just there's been a lot going on. She stared at me as if I were on stage and she was waiting for me to produce a forgotten line. Don't just stand there like a statue honoring the confused. Comfort me. Hug me or something. I stepped over to hug her and lifted her nearly off her feet. She weighed almost nothing. I'm sorry for the loss of your friend and for letting you hear about it from somebody else. It's not your fault, she said into my sternum. Tuyen was probably dead before I even asked you to check on her. "'What I need now is for you to do what we talked about—chop some rooster necks.' She punctuated her point with a sharp squeeze. I squeezed her back and slipped out of the embrace. "'Yes, well, about that. Is there some place we can talk? I could use some more of your help.' She sniffed and gave a wan smile. "'We could talk while I give you a pedicure.' Uh, no. Then let's adjourn to the executive suite. She led me through the salon door past the client chairs and the soapstone Buddha to another door in the rear of the building. She flung that open to reveal a cramped break room with a folding table and a couple of folding chairs, a rice cooker and an electric tea kettle set in the middle of the table surrounded by women's magazines with their mailing labels torn off. The whole space smelled faintly of miso soup. Kim took the chair farthest from the door and gestured for me to take the other one. She pushed the magazines to the side and rested her hands on the table. Tell me what you found out at Tu Yin's first. The news story was pretty sketchy. I recounted the story of finding Tu Yin and Mrs. Kongsheng Chai in the bathtub. I was tempted to leave out the part about Tu Yen being tortured, but I wanted to hear Kim's ideas about it. I tried to slide it in with a vague reference, and it slid about as quietly as the Rose Bowl parade. "'Torture!' Kim nearly shouted. "'What kind of torture?' I shifted in my seat, making the folding chair squeak. "'With a heated blade.' "'How exactly with a heated blade?' "'That's enough detail, I think.' She took hold of bunches of fuchsia-colored hair on either side of her head, You are really going to have to chop some necks now. You don't know the half of it. It looks like they've kidnapped my client, and they may have done the same to her. Your client? I thought you were trying to find out who killed your friend. I am, but this client is really my friend's client. He was working on an investigation for her when he was killed. It felt odd calling Angelina a client at this point, but I didn't see any value in detailing the story for Kim. Shit! This is even scarier than I thought. It's not going to blow back on me, is it? No, I've kept your name out of it. With the cops and toe. You've talked to them? toe, Yeah, and I've changed my mind. I don't think they had anything to do with it. I told you, this is too fucked up. They just want to make their money and be left alone. She smoothed her hair back down around her ears. Why was tu tortured? I was hoping you could tell me. She knew something her killers wanted, I guess, and it was something she didn't want to tell them. Kim stared down at the table and shook her head. I've no idea. She didn't know anything, except maybe the best time to stick a finger up a guy's butt when giving him a hand job. I cleared my throat. throat. I don't think that's what they were after, Let me ask you about this other thing, then. I explained what Thompson had told me about the Hive's dream renting out the secret room at Golden Fingers. Does that ring a bell? Maybe. You remember I mentioned that another girl at Golden Fingers told me about a polysexual family or club or something using the room. I think that's them. I don't remember the name exactly, but it had Dream or Dreamy in it. Can you find out for sure? I can try. She pulled out a cell phone from her pocket in the apron she was wearing, hunted and pecked on the screen for a moment, then dialed a number. A moment later, she said something in what I assumed was Vietnamese. There was a lot of give and take on the phone for more than five minutes. I amused myself by perusing articles in the magazines. It's okay to change your man, because secretly he wants you to, and my gyno talked to my vagina and other Doc Shockers. Kim eventually signed off with a not-very-Vietnamese chow and looked over at me. Picking up any tips? Not really, but I'm beginning to think there's more to being a woman than I realized. Well, duh, but it doesn't have anything to do with what you'd read in those magazines. What'd you find out? The group isn't exactly who I thought they were, but it's the same people, the Hive's Dream. It is. It isn't a single-poly family, though— or even a local swingers club. They are a worldwide affiliation of poly families. Kind of like the Masons for Pervs? Sort of. The local branch is probably the one that talked to Mrs. Kongcheng Chai about renting out the room on an exclusive basis. My friend didn't know anything about that, though. I thought about Chris's note and how he had described Brendan and Andreas as being part of a family. If it's an international organization... Would out-of-town members get reciprocal privileges? Sure, I think that's the point of it. That in the monthly newsletter. You have some out-of-towners in mind? I do, but while they've been able to locate me with ease, I haven't been able to pin them down. If I could talk to someone with the local branch, I might be able to trace them. Then it's a good thing my friend made an out-call to a local hive dream daddy. According to her... He lives in a place on Arguello. The Arguello Boulevard address Kim gave me turned out to be just across the street from the monumental Temple Emmanuel. I had a cab drop me a block away, walked to a spot by the entrance to the temple, and stood in the gloom scoping out the property. The house was tall, narrow, and vaguely English with a peaked roof overhanging windows with tiny rectangular panes, and a jutting columnar chimney. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to say when I rang the bell, and while I was mulling over the options, a car with an Uber sticker pulled up. A guy in a pea coat and a watch cap got out and trudged up the brick stairs to the second floor entrance. Less than five minutes later, another Uber driver delivered a young woman in a short wool skirt and a clingy sweater. When a third Uber pulled up into the narrow driveway, I decided that a party was in progress and that I had better make an appearance. I jogged across the street to the idling car, arriving just as the rear door popped open. A tall woman wearing a hooded cloak stepped out. In the dim light, it was hard to see what she was wearing underneath, but whatever it was seemed to consist mainly of leather and metal studs. Well, well. She said in a husky whisper, What do we have here? I didn't know what to say to that, so I kept my mouth shut. I haven't seen you before. Are you with a family, or... Or? Or are you a party favor? I almost winced. Is there a third option? She laughed. It was a deep, throaty laugh that didn't seem to go with her soft speaking voice. You are either with a family, or you are a paid guest. I'll take the fifth on that, I said, and gestured towards the house. After you. She hesitated for the briefest moment, then sauntered up the drive, her cape billowing out behind her. I followed a safe distance behind, and we clunked up the stairs together, me and my pointy ankle boots, and her and her even pointier Knee-high boots with stiletto heels. At the door, she turned to block my path. With the benefit of the porch light, I got my first good look at her face. She had blonde hair and deceptively innocent features. Large green eyes, an upturned nose, and a pouty Cupid bow's mouth painted a velvety matte red. I put her in her mid-forties. Let me guess, she said teasingly. You used to be in porn. Gay or straight. You're jumping, or more to the point, top or bottom. Like I, or verse. I would like it best if you were verse. In fact, I'm quite sure Robert wouldn't have hired you if you weren't verse. Robert didn't hire me. Then what are you doing here? I obviously didn't have many choices for a cover story. I'm trying out for the family. She laughed again and flung open the door. Fresh meat. I followed her across the threshold and closed the door with exaggerated care, hoping that she would take the hint and flit off on her own. No such luck. Come on now, she chided. I'll give you the tour. Robert hasn't added to his family in quite some time. What's your name? August, I admitted finally. August. Augustus, an appropriately debauched Roman name. Normally we don't play at members' houses, but we've lost our hive space, so Robert volunteered to host. But there are some rules, so please pay attention. She gestured to a large room at the front of the house. This is the main play area, the main public play area. On a hardwood floor in front of a gas fireplace was a fluffy rug with bolsters sprinkled across it. Various pieces of furniture, coffee and side tables, wingback chairs, a four-foot-high sculpture of a boy playing a flute, were pushed back against the walls to provide more maneuvering room. And maneuvering in that room were three clusters of writhing bodies, a female with two males, two males and a female, "'and a bigger group of three males and two females. "'As Kim had indicated earlier, they were not all beautiful people, "'and several of the men were outright flabby. "'One of the participants moaned and another squealed loudly. "'It looks like things are off to an early start,' said the blonde woman. "'Come on, I'll show you where we keep the provisions.' "'She led me past a stairway, down a short hallway,' and into the kitchen. It had the standard granite counters and stainless steel appliances that a million other places had. On an L-shaped counter by the entrance were two large bowls filled to the brim with condoms and things that looked like McDonald's ketchup packets. But they probably weren't, unless McDonald's was distributing lubricant. A phalanx of little glass bottles with colorful labels was arranged to one side of the bowls, and on the other side, a pile of lollipops in equally colorful wrappers. I recognized the bottles as poppers, but I wasn't quite sure what to make of the lollipops. She stopped in front of the counter. Rule number one, all play is safe. She reached into the condom bowl to retrieve a handful and pushed them into the satchel bag she was carrying. The collirary of rule number one, is that all play is smooth play, either naturally or with assistance. She took a handful of the lubricant packets from the other bowl and dumped them into the bag. Then she smiled at me with a cat ate the canary grin. And the other junk? You really don't do this playing dumb thing well, do you? These are poppers, of course, she said, pointing at the bottles with the red-tipped nail. I'll give you a pass on the lollipops, since you might not have seen them before. They're THC. You mean dope? Marijuana? She laughed again. That's right. There are all sorts of new products available since it became legal in California. But a word of advice. If you'd like to indulge, go slow. It takes a lot longer to kick in than it does when you smoke. You don't want to lick a second one down to the stick without seeing how the first affects you. You liked saying lick and stick, didn't you? I did. Now, you see anything you need? I've got us covered on the rubbers and lube. Maybe some poppers? I didn't know much about poppers, but I did know that some gay men inhaled them before anal sex. Maybe later. Sure. The night is young. Come on, I'll show you the cloakroom. We retraced our route to the entryway, then took a left into a room on the side. It was furnished like an office or study, but it had several rolling clothes racks with hangers parked in the middle. I recognized the pea coat of the guy I'd seen enter the house and the wool skirt and sweater of the woman who followed. There were also shoes on the floor and bags with smaller items slung over the hangers. "'Here's another important rule,' said my guide." All clothes you intend to take off go here. No leaving underwear or socks wadded up in the corner for Robert to find tomorrow morning. What do you mean, intend to take off? Some of the traps like to leave on knee-high socks, short skirts, or bustiers to emphasize their femininity. I looked at her with what must have been a stupid expression. You do know what a trap is, don't you? Sure, of course. I learned later that it was Internet slang for androgynous anime characters and people who cross-dress. And I, on the other hand, like a little support. She whipped off the cloak to reveal a garment made of black leather straps, O-rings, rivets, and metal studs. It encircled her throat, crisscrossed her bare breasts, and formed a cage around her torso. Garters in front and back held up black stockings, and at her crotch, a built-in harness held a triangular nylon pad with a large O-ring in the center. I was pretty sure I knew what the O-ring was for, and it didn't take long for her to confirm my suspicions. After hanging up her cloak, she reached into her bag to take out two black dildos, which she held right in front of my face. One was large, and the other even larger. Pick your pleasure, she said in her husky whisper. I took her hand by the wrist and lowered it. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I like a little foreplay first. Of course you do. Would I be correct in assuming that you are the head of one of the Polly families? She tapped me on the chest with the dildos. Now you are getting it. We have three families here tonight. Robert, as you know, is daddy of one. I'm the mommy of the other. And Sid is the daddy of the third. And mommies and daddies have special privileges. We each have a bedroom upstairs reserved for private play. Now why don't you get undressed and we'll go to my room. She had a lovely body but I had no intention of going anywhere with her. She scared the bejesus out of me, and I needed to stay focused on the reason I'd crashed the party. Do you know a daddy named Brendan by any chance? No? No Brendans. Why? No special reason. She put her dildos back in the bag and smiled. Let me help you off with your jacket. Shouldn't I check in with Robert first, let him know I'm here? No need. You've already checked in with Mommy. And if I know Robert, he's in his room entertaining a crowd. I'm different. I like to start the evening with a little quality one-on-one time. I patted the lapels of my jacket nervously. I was wearing the Luger in a holster underneath, and there was no way I was letting her take it off. Let me make a quick pit stop first. Bathrooms are upstairs? She laughed. (laughs) Ha ha. Yes, they are. I see what you're doing. You're going to sneak a Viagra or a Cialis from your jacket pocket. Fine. Go ahead. I'll be waiting upstairs. Third door on the right. The bathroom is the first on the left. I nodded without making eye contact, as if she'd caught me out, and hurried past her to the staircase. I went up two stairs at a time, and instead of turning left for the bathroom... I went right for the first bedroom. I decided my only play at this point was to barge in on Robert and grill him about Golden Fingers, The Hive's Dream, and out-of-town members. I put my ear to the door, listening for sounds of activity within. Just as I was reaching for the knob, the bathroom door behind me clicked open, and an individual wearing pink and white striped stockings, a pink skirt, a pink bra, and a short turquoise wig stepped out. From what Mommy had told me, I realized with a jolt that I was looking at a trap. I realized with a further jolt that this particular trap was none other than Angelina's friend Jeff. I recognized him before he recognized me, and I wasn't taking any chances this time. I shoved him back into the john, crowded in after him, and kicked the door closed. He tried to squirt past me, but I blocked his path with one arm while I slipped the Luger out of its holster with the other. I pointed the barrel right at the little clasp between the cups of his bra. I've had trouble unhooking these in the past, I said, but I've never tried shooting one off. You have been listening to The Deadbeat Scroll, a book the New York Journal of Books described as a glorious potpourri of violence, black humor, sex, and a hunt for a lost manuscript. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.